Well, good morning. It's good to see you all here. It's good to be here together. Uh, we are wrapping up this series on the Lord's Supper, Lord's uh, Supper called Come to the Table. And uh, honestly, this has been a, a, a series that I have been studying for a very long time and then in depth um, the past couple months, and I've thoroughly enjoyed the study with this. I've enjoyed um, the comments that people have made, and I've especially enjoyed the discussion with, our, with my small group uh, afterwards, uh, because I actually get to hear whenever they roast the preacher. Um, usually that happens at lunch. We were doing it at our small group. It was fun. Um, but I want to take that moment and just encourage you, if you are not or have not been involved with any of our Sunday night gatherings, I want to highly encourage you to strive to get involved. Uh, small groups meeting across the county um, and also a group here at the building that uh, many of our small groups have, have had some wonderful, from what I've heard, some wonderful productive conversations about the Lord's Supper continuing on in the discussion. It's not that all small groups are always going to follow up with what the, uh, what the sermon was on Sunday morning. It was that series. But we're offering that as well, future, uh, for small groups to continue that uh, using the material from the sermon and continue in the, the discussion. But I'm really, I've enjoyed all aspects leading up to it. I kind of hate seeing the, this go, but I'm really looking forward to tonight's service. So I forgot to have it mentioned in our welcome. So tonight, we're asking everyone, all the small groups, uh, everyone uh, to come and join us in the, uh, in the Family Life Center tonight from 5.30 to 6.30. It's going to be a time of singing. Uh, we skipped over our fifth Sunday singing, so we're going to employ some of that, have a good time of singing. But we're going to gather around tables, and we're going to share the Lord's Supper uh, and, and some more conversations there uh, in that moment together. And so I highly I encourage you to come because I'm really looking forward to uh, breaking bread together with you again this evening. One of the things that I've noticed uh, throughout this series and all the conversations that I've had is I've had a lot of... A lot of people talk to me about, all right, what are we doing this week? What does it look like? Um, and and there's been met with resistance, and there's been met with some question or concern. And I, I want to applaud you on that. Because the thing is, any time something of our normalcy gets changed, it warrants a question. If we change anything out of our normal routine, we need to question as to why is this good, is this right, is this healthy, is this beneficial? We need to have those questions. And so thank you for those of you who have had those conversations with me or among yourselves, however you have had those questions, because those are good, healthy questions. Tradition is important. Because tradition helps us understand uh, a lot of biblical theology of standing on the shoulders of those who have come before, my parents, my grandparents, or even much long before the Wiggins were ever part of a church. Tradition helps us understand a lot of things, but there's a caveat, there's a question mark, because tradition sometimes leads us in the wrong direction. See, sometimes tradition... We, we elevate it to its own status where it is now equal with Scripture. And we begin to lose the meaning or lose the importance of what it is that we are doing traditionally. And so sometimes whenever that comes into play, we need to reevaluate by the Bible through the lens of the Bible, not simply through the lens of our tradition, need to reevaluate and say, are we still in line with what has happened here? See, in the comments and the, the 
the conversations that I've had, there's been a theme that I have recognized, and it hadn't been in all of them, but a majority of the comments that people have had with me has been around something like this. It says, well, Mitch, I just feel like, or Mitch, I just want, in this time of communion, or some other derivative of an I desire individualistic approach. And it struck me how often that's how we talk about things like the Lord's Supper, is in most every one of these conversations, the others, other people's thoughts, feelings, concerns, were actually never voiced, much less talked about. And even strikingly, in a lot of those conversations, neither was the Lord's will. It was what I want or what I desire. I'm just saying that every one of us myself included, we got room to grow. We need, we need to grow outside of ourselves. There is an individualistic aspect. Don't get me wrong. You have to come. But there's a communal aspect, and there's clearly a God aspect that all puts this together. See, the overall mandate of Scripture, one of the biggest things that is said over and over and over again in Scripture is about love says, God is love, and because of that, we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbor as ourself. Love God, love others. And if our tradition or if our, the way we practice things or any kind of conversation does not love God or love others, we probably are putting it through the wrong filter. And so this morning, as we wrap up the series, I'm going to focus on some things, some questions that the church throughout history has had around the Lord's Supper that has caused division and done the very opposite of what was desired in the Lord's Supper to create unity. Now, not all of these questions are ones that we necessarily deal with here, but I want to walk you through some church history to understand maybe how we got here because that's important, just as important to understand, understand as it is to understand the questions we're dealing with now. So the first question is in, in, as it relates to having a full meal with the Lord's Supper. Our practice here, as you know, we're about to have it, is not a full meal. It wouldn't constitute anything close to a meal. It's not even a good snack for most of us. I mean, at least a good snack is Dr. Pepper and some Oreos. This is, you know, a little bit of, little bit of juice, a little bit of cracker, it's not even a good snack for my kids. They need more than this. So it's not a meal by any stretch of the imagination as we normally think of meals. But in the Bible, the examples that we have are clearly around a meal. Last week we looked at 1 uh, Corinthians that the church there gathered and it shared the Lord's Supper in the setting of a meal. Now they were doing it wrong and Paul had to reprimand them on that, but he did not say discontinue the meal. He said re understand, let the meal be now dictated by the understanding of the Lord's Supper, not separating these two ideas. In fact, the Last Supper, whenever the Lord's Supper was instituted, that was a meal as well. Jesus himself instituted the Lord's Supper during a meal. So the question maybe that we should ask as a church is, why don't we anymore? Why don't we follow the example of Scripture and have the Lord's Supper during a meal? 
I think that's a pretty healthy and good question for us to at least consider. And some of you who are logistically oriented are thinking, well, because it just ain't going to work. It's a little too difficult to do that. It's hard in our current setup to do that, which is exactly what happened. The earliest um, writing about the Lord's Supper after um, the New Testament is found in a document called the Didache. The Didache was written around 100 AD, pretty close to that. Um, so it's just after most of Scripture was written. And uh, it's really kind of like a church manual, how to do things in the church. Um, each chapter, as it were, kind of takes on a different aspect of church life and how to do the things. So in chapter 9, um, it talks about the Lord's Supper and how to administer, how to take the Lord's Supper. It is clear that in this time and even in this document that it's within a meal. But it says that you give thanks for the cup first, and a prayer expresses gratitude for the holy vine of David, which has been known, uh, known to us through Jesus. And then it says give thanks for the broken bread, and the prayer expresses gratitude for the life and knowledge which God made known to us through Jesus. So the early church practice there in, in the in the hundreds, was they would recognize, they would pray, they would do the cup first and then the bread. And we're thinking, they're crazy, right? Because that's out of order, that's out of sequence. Well, we looked a few weeks ago in Luke at how there was a cup, then bread, then cup again. And so maybe it's not as crazy as we might think. By the time of Justin Martyr, who was about 150 AD, um, the meal was starting to be separated from the Lord's Supper. But it wasn't really until the third century that we see that these two things separated. And it wasn't until about the seventh century that the meal, often even at, around that time was even called the agape feast, was all but discontinued. And all you had left was a pinch of bread and a sip of juice. Now, how they got there you have to understand what else was going on because it wasn't in isolation that they got to this mentality. What happened is during that time around the third century and then following into the seventh century, the church began to meet in church buildings rather than in homes. We look at what happened in Acts 2 that they went into homes and shared the Lord's Supper. We see in 1 Corinthians that they were in homes sharing this Lord's Supper. That was the normal practice. And if nothing else, Jesus was in the upper room of a home to share the Passover meal. That was the normal understanding. But when the church started meeting in buildings, the logistics of sharing a meal became a little bit harder. Because more people now gathered in a building than what would normally fit in a home. And when more people gathered, they looked at the budget saying, we can't feed everybody. They started looking at some of the logistics saying, we can't even place everybody to be fed. And so the meal, the table, was removed from the practice of the Lord's Supper. Now, granted, we still had a table, but the mentality of a meal table was taken away. So for at least the last 13 centuries, our tradition, our heritage, our thinking has been devoid of a meal. And it has simply been an act of worship. We have missed one of the pieces through there and has led us into that mentality, which is one of the reasons I wanted to share this whole series is to help us understand the roots and what is really trying to be communicated and going on at the Lord's table. It's his table. 
not ours. Traditions have changed so much that I honestly believe that if a first century Christian were to just happen to be, you know, time travel and come and worship with us, they would be a little confused. I think it would strike them as odd of how we share the Lord's Supper. I think it's that much different than what the first Christians experienced. But one of the, and I'm not saying that is, that it's a bad thing. I'm saying that it at least is worth a question for us to consider what it might look like. But beyond that, another thing that I think the first, the earliest Christians might find amusing, maybe is the right word, or odd, is another question that has been asked. And it may not be asked so much in our, in this room, um, or even in our heritage, but the, the question throughout the church has split churches, and it continues to have some divisive nature. The question is this, should the bread be unleavened only? In other words, no yeast. It can't rise like normal bread. Cracker mentality. It's a, it's a thin kind of thing. Should it just be leavened or unleavened? It may surprise some of you to know that for the first 10 centuries of the church, regular leavened bread was used as the Lord's Supper. For about the first 10 centuries, it wasn't a question. It wasn't even on their radar. They used the bread that they had, which is fascinating. Now, it's not across the board completely true, but there wasn't much debate on it. It was, yeah, whichever bread for the first 10 centuries. After that, the Eastern Church and Western Church had a split, and the Eastern Church um, continued in the practice of leavened bread, and the Western Church decided, you know what, we're going to separate ourselves from them, and we are going to go to an unleavened bread. So that's tradition. Some denominations still use uh, some normal bread today, which is not, it's just what it is. And that may be tradition, but I'm not asking on the, on the spa- space of tradition. I would be curious more so, what's the Bible say? What does the Bible say about whether the bread can have leaven or not? Well, here's the thing. The New Testament is rather imprecise about what kind of bread to use, which is really annoying. I would like it to say, here's the ingredients to make the stuff. Here's the exact recipe. You follow this, this will be great. But there is no blueprint that is that clear about the bread. In fact, the word for bread is the Greek term artos, which is the generic term for bread. It can mean leavened bread. It can mean unleavened bread. It can mean any kind of bread. In fact, at Passover, that's the same word that is used, is artos. And the same generic understanding for um, the cup. It says fruit of the vine. It doesn't specify wine, which is interesting that in a lot of our rationale, we might say, well, we, you can't use wine or shouldn't use wine, but by the same logic, well, you can't use something specified like unleavened bread, but we don't go there. We see that there's a difference in these two understandings. So here's the deal. New Testament lacks specification. It doesn't tell us exactly. Now, the major reason for advocating um, unleavened bread is, is the tie that whenever Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it was at the event of Passover. 
And if you know through the history of Passover, that in Passover, what they had to do was they had to cleanse their house of all leaven, and the bread that they made was unleavened bread. And so we deduce that Jesus used unleavened bread at the institution of the Lord's Supper. Thus, we should use unleavened bread. Now, there's several assumptions made there because the same assumption is made about the wine. It's saying, well, in the Passover, they didn't have drink that was fermented uh, whenever it was set up, so Jesus must not have. But the thing is, by the first century, in the Passover, they were using real wine uh, in, the, in the Passover as well, that that had either devalued or diluted, to borrow a fun term for that, um, into that understanding. All of this to say that there's a case to be made for unleavened bread. Some people say, well, because no one's going to argue the fact that Jesus used it. But the question is, why did he use it? Was it to make some point, or was it simply because that was the bread available? Whenever he instituted the Lord's Supper, the bread available was unleavened bread. And then three days later, two and a half days later, however you want to count uh, the days, whenever he celebrates the first Lord's Supper on, with those on, uh, in Emmaus, there's no specification of the kind of bread. He says, he took the bread, he bro broke it, blessed it, and gave it to them. The assumption is Jesus used the bread that was available. It is possible that that bread was just normal bread. Conclusive? No. Possible? Yes. The same is true for any time we see the Lord's Supper used. It is possible that it's the bread that is used. The point being, not so much the exact recipe, the point being, what is the purpose now, you may say, well, Mitch, pretty sure the Bible says that yeast represents sin, and there doesn't need to be sin in the Lord's Supper. If there doesn't need to be sin in the Lord's Supper, then what are you doing taking it? Because each one of us brings our sin into this. It's the atonement that we have through the act and the renewal of our commitment. We have our sin, and we're bringing it to the table. But God is re renewing us. But with that, you're not wrong. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Don't you realize that sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Well, yeah. That's where it says it. The issue is this is not talking about communion. This is talking about a comparison that sin, like yeast, spreads and infects everything. You know, Jesus used the same illustration but in the positive. He didn't use yeast in the form of sin. He said this in Matthew 13. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she only put a little yeast in, in the three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. I believe the illustration of yeast is simply this. It spreads. Sin, it spreads. Kingdom of God, it spreads. So if you want to point that Scripture says, well, you know, sin is, uh, yeast is like sin, well, you also need to point the kingdom of God is like yeast as well recognizing all of this is tied together. The, I'm not saying, please don't hear me saying that we should now have yeast in our communion bread. I'm merely pointing out that churches have divided and we have not loved each other through these kinds of conversations. In fact, the biggest split of the church was over this and, and a few other issues. It's like, wow, really? Over an un- a generic term in scripture we're going to split over see the thing is all too often what we have done we've spent our time focusing on the perfection of the elements 
We've spent our time focusing on the perfection of the setting or the perfection of the form or any other aspect that has often led us to missing the point of having the meal. See, the point is to remember Christ, Him sacrificed and risen, to share this meal and communion with Him. As we were discussing this in my small group, uh, uh, Weldon Bearden said a line that I absolutely loved. He said this, Don't ever let an imperfect meal mess up the celebration. Now that applies in cooking dinner for your family. Don't let the imperfect meal mess up the celebration. But I want to submit to you that there's a level that that applies to our Lord's Supper. See, so often we want everything to be perfect. But as long as humans are involved, we're going to mess up. As long as humans are involved, we're going to drop a tray every once in a while, and it's going to be a distraction. As long as humans are involved, we are going to miss the point, which is why we need to come back to Scripture and understand what is the point of all this? Why are we doing this together? Maybe we need to refocus. Maybe we need to reexamine. Maybe we need to do things in a different way so that we understand and remember Christ in what he asked us to. See, the thing is, and I've heard this in several conversations, I've even heard it in our uh, bringing into our communion talk, that we have desired to have less distraction in our worship, less distraction in this time of Lord's Supper. I, I want to I tell you, we cannot have a distraction-free environment. As long as people are involved, it's not going to happen. And if we keep on promoting this, I want to tell you it's a short step to, to this idea, this desire to have distractionless worship to all of a sudden saying that little, little kids, maybe even ones like my little Zoe, they're not welcome here anymore because they could be a distraction. We need to be very careful about what we promote and what it means because sometimes we promote some of the most unloving doctrine based upon our wants, our feels, our desires, not on what God desires. So distractions happen. The thing is, is it awkward to hold a cup for a little bit longer than we're used to? You betcha. That's not, that's not normal. It's kind of weird. Is it awkward to do a responsive reading of Scripture, yes, because it's not normal. But the thing is, the, another question, is it wrong? Is it wrong to strive to understand the point and the reason and the rationale of sharing the Lord's Supper? That leads me to the last question I'm going to deal with this morning. What's the point? What's the point of sharing the Lord's Supper? We've been on this series for several weeks. Why do we do this? Why do we gather and come together? Obviously, it's to remember Christ. We understand that. Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. Paul echoed that with saying, we do this in remembrance of Christ. But this isn't a remembrance like we remember our loved one who has passed away. This isn't just a re fond memories of some friend. There's got to be something more. Why do we take this often and remember Christ? Here's the thing, remembering Christ, sharing the Lord's Supper together, this proclaims the gospel. 
It's a proclamation of the gospel. It's not just a sign. It's not just a, some metaphor. It's not simply a snack. It's not simply something that we do in order to checkmark some box on our worship that we made sure we have all five acts of worship. Here's one of them. We've done it. Oh, it's so much more than that. We proclaim the gospel of Christ every time that we partake. We share in his death and resurrection every time that we take. This is very similar to, the, uh, to baptism. In baptism, we participate in the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. Surely you've heard that before. The Lord's Supper is a way of continuing. We not only remember his death, we take part of his body symbolizing the death. But we also are renewed to life by the life-giving blood, his resurrection. All of this is tied. It's a sharing of the gospel every time we partake. Every time we share communion, we are sharing the gospel. It should be so evident to everyone that partakes of this that this is a gospel moment. This is a gospel sharing. It should be so evident among us that if an outsider were to come in and view our sharing of the Lord's Supper, they should understand something about the gospel. That's how clear it should be. And maybe we got some work to do. I don't know fully what that looks like. People have asked me, hey, where, where are we going after this with when, you know, how we share the Lord's Supper? I don't know. I'm creating the conversation pieces. That, that is, we will continue in the conversation. I don't have an agenda. I just want to talk about what Scripture says and how that informs what, what we do. And if you're in for that journey, come on and let's ride. See, it's not simply about a past act that we remember Jesus did. That's part of it. It's also about a present reality. It's a present experience that Christ is not just symbolized in these emblems. He is present at his table. His table invites us. Sure, we proclaim what he has done, but it's also a proclamation of our allegiance to him. Every time we share the Lord's Supper, we are saying that Christ is not only our Savior, but he's our Lord. He is in charge. We are connected with him. He is king. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, that is what we're proclaiming. Christ is king. And so the Lord's Supper should remind us of Christ, who he is, what he has done, what he's continuing to do. And if we understand Scripture well enough to understand an overall word to encompass Christ, is his love. It was his love that put him on the cross to save you and I from our sins. It was his love, through his love, that he invites us, sinners, saved by his grace, to his table. We are not deserving to sit at his table on our own merits. We are only deserved because Christ says, you are welcome here. It is his love that should compel us to love one another. Not just invite us, but implore us to love each other. Because every time we share the Lord's Supper, we share in Him. We share His presence. And every time we do that, we are participating in the gospel of love. So let us not let anything separate us. Let's not let anything divide us as our church history has shown over and over again that we can divide about just about anything. 
Let's not let the Lord's Supper be one of those moments. In fact, the whole proclamation of this is to love as Christ loved. So this morning, I want you to recognize that the Lord's Supper, it's a big deal. It's a big deal because we serve a big God. A God that so loved us so much that he gave his life for us. A God that so loved us so much that he prepared a way for us to remember him, but also to share his table now and forever. So this morning, if you want to be a part of that community that shares in love with one another, we are not perfect. We mess up on this, but we're striving for it. We are striving to love each other the way that Christ has loved us. And if you haven't been a part of that, if you need to put on Christ as your Lord and Savior through the waters of baptism, to be a part of this family and to understand truly what's going on, we welcome you this morning. If you are struggling, know that you can bring your struggles here. Just let it be known. Come find one of the elders and ministers. We'll surround the auditorium if you need to talk. Would you do so as we stand and sing together?